Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Back in the 16th century, this verse and others like it became loaded ammunition for a protracted and nasty theological debate between continental Protestants and Roman Catholics, both taking up entrenched positions on opposite sides of the debate of justification. Chances are, if you're like me, and you've been in a church for more than a few Sundays, you've heard something from the pulpit about being justified by faith. Maybe even contradictory things. Maybe you've heard that it works by imputing Christ's righteousness and merits to you without you having to do anything in particular. Maybe you've heard that it works by imparting the excess merits of Jesus and the saints through the Pope's merit grab bag that he distributes at his pleasure. There's a number of different stories of how it works, but there you go. After hearing enough of these debates, I found myself echoing the words of Inigo Montoya. I don't think those words mean what you think they mean. So, I tried to find out what St. Paul's original audience might have heard in those words. And before long, I realized that I had some serious unlearning to do. And maybe I still do. First of all, St. Paul's letter to the church at Rome, rather than being a systematic theological treatise, was a response to a very real pastoral issue going on in the city. You see, the emperor Claudius had some years before expelled all Jews from the city of Rome, both Christian and non-Christian Jews, and those Jews were now, under a new emperor, being allowed to return. For years, then, the Gentile Christians had the place all to themselves. And when their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters began to return from their exile, there was a real danger that conflicts would erupt that would result in not one unified Christian church, but two, one Gentile and one Jewish. St. Paul then is imploring them in his epistle to the Romans to stay together because all of us, whether Jewish or Gentile, are in the same boat. Whether we have the Torah or not, all of us are infected with the same addiction to sin, which leads to death. And, that, and what justifies us now before God is exactly what justified our forefather, Abraham. And so we hear the familiar verse, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. What a sad irony, then, that the church some 1,500 years later should have divided over these very words of St. Paul. But if we were to understand him properly, we'll have to seek out what these two very important terms really mean. First of all is that word justification, or dikaiosis in the Greek. It simply means to set right, or to rightly order, or to show to be in the right. And it's the same word in the Greek, or same root in the Greek as our word righteous or righteousness. And I want to give a couple of examples to help clarify what that term meant in its context. Now, the most common metaphor we tend to hear connected to justification is concerning the courtroom. 
In a court case, the winner, the one whom the judge ruled in their favor, was, was the one who was justified or vindicated or shown to be in the right. But if that's all that happened, if the judge just pronounced their judgment and said, yeah, you're in the right, uh, but I'm going to let your adversary continue to oppress you and to take advantage of you, well, we'd be sorely disappointed, wouldn't we? Of course, what the judge should be doing is redressing the imbalanced situation and setting things right, making sure goods and reputations were restored or damages awarded to balance those scales of justice. But this concept of justification applied to far more than just courtroom settings, and some of these usages are still present in the English. Now, for example, when I went to the chiropractor this past Friday, I got my spine, what? Adjusted, right? I got it justified, that is, set back into right alignment, upright, so that I can move about without so much stiffness and pain, and it feels awesome. Or to take another example, um, the, when I open up Microsoft Word on my computer and I want to set my text in order, I click what button? Well, like right or left or center justify and it sets the text back in order. Surprisingly, though, the term is also used in the Old Testament back in the prophet Daniel and later on in the book of Maccabees to describe what would happen in, in Daniel's prophecy, what would happen when God rededicated, cleansed, and restored the temple in Jerusalem. And it, Daniel said that that would be the justification of the temple. And then in 1 Maccabees, when Judas Maccabeus actually historically went and did that, kicked out the Seleucids who had been offering pork on God's altar, which is no bueno from God's perspective, and he went and, and cleansed the temple and set it right so that the sacrifices could return in proper order and that God could dwell in the midst of his people again, the text said that Judas Maccabeus justified the temple. Now, that doesn't mean that the temple got saved. It means that it was cleansed from corruption of defiling pagan sacrifice and restored to the proper order that God had made it for so that he could dwell in there again. Now, in this sense, it's very much akin to what God did when he looked over the chaotic waters in the beginning and set them into order. He made the ordered habitable cosmos or universe out of it. In one sense, then, he justified the cosmos. So when we talk about human beings being justified before God, this is not just an issue of who gets to be at the right hand of Christ when he comes in his glory to judge the living and the dead, but more immediately about what can cleanse and renew our crooked, sin-addicted hearts and set them right with God, even here and now. Indeed, as temples of his Holy Spirit so that his blessings can flow to us. Hopefully, this is beginning to make some sense so far. In St. Paul's day, the major running theories about what qualified you to be one of the righteous or one of the just was either, one, being genetically related to the patriarch Abraham, or two, perfect observance of the Torah as interpreted by the Pharisees, of course. The obvious problem with that first theory was that just a basic read-through of the Bible will show you that not all of Abraham's descendants received the promise, did they? Ishmael, Esau, and their descendants 
didn't inherit. And the problem, or at least one of the problems with the second theory is that the Pharisees were misunderstanding the purpose for which God gave Israel the Torah or the law in the first place. The law was never meant to be adding amendments or further qualifications to God's original promises to Abraham about eternal life, glory, and the inheritance of the nations by his righteous seed. All that the law, the Torah, was meant to be was a sin detection and management system until the Christ, to whom it pointed, came to deal with sin once and for all. But the law itself was powerless in itself to cure crooked, sin-addicted hearts. As St. Paul writes in the Galatians, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness indeed would have been by the law. That's why the prophets from Moses to David to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel all spoke of the coming new covenant where our sins would be forgiven and we would be given renewed, cleansed hearts of flesh where God would write the Torah or the law upon our hearts and empower us to fulfill all righteousness through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. How can keeping the rules earn us that? It can't. These are gifts of God, his unmerited grace. What then set Abraham in the right with God, and what will set us right? St. Paul is clear on this point. It's faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. When we say then that we are justified by faith, what we're saying is that faith rather than Pharisaic Torah keeping or whatever else we might input in that section is what connects us to the power source that can cleanse, renew, and set our crooked, sin-addicted hearts right and which will ultimately make us one of the just whom God exalts when he returns in his glory. But then what do we mean by this second term, faith? common, maybe a more Protestant understanding is that faith or belief is an intellectual assent to some teaching or doctrine. I can recite some confession or the Nicene Creed and nod along and say, yeah, I believe all that. Check. True. Well, here's a problem with that theory. As St. James says in his epistle, even the demons believe everything in the Nicene Creed and they tremble. Clearly, that can't be a justifying faith. Now, a good Anglican or someone with a more sacramental background might say, well, faith should mean getting baptized and then coming to church regularly and receiving the Eucharist, right? Well, we're getting warmer now. We're almost there. But again, if these things aren't animated by a living faith, they won't do us much good. They might even testify against us. The key would be to look at that Greek word, pistuo, which I know Father Rodriguez has taken you all through before. Although it is usually translated in our Bibles as belief or faith, the word also means trust, faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, and allegiance. And these do a much better job of getting at what St. Paul was meaning by the term. I've even heard a Hebrew scholar say that the way he translated it is chutzpah, which is like an admirable audacity. 
I personally love how that gets at the dynamism of the term of faith. Abraham did, first of all, believe God, and admittedly, it's impressive enough that he should have believed what God told him and promised him, given his situation as a 75-year-old man living in his father's basement. But more than that, Abraham trusted God. He was faithful to God. He forsook loyalty to his father's pagan gods back in Mesopotamia and placed his allegiance in Yahweh, the most high God, the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, as St. Paul says. And that faithful trust showed itself in the chutzpah it took to set out on a dangerous, treacherous journey to the opposite end of the known world and even to accept the rather uncomfortable sign of circumcision, which St. Paul calls a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Real justifying faith, then, the kind that makes you a son of Abraham and heir to the promises of God, doesn't just hear and give intellectual assent. Real faith works. It's effective. But you'd be right to ask me then, well, how does it work? Well, it has to work like Abraham's faith worked if it's to obtain the blessedness he obtained. And that's primarily in two ways. Like Abraham, it works first of all by receiving the sacrament of our trust in God in obedience to his commandment. Now for Abraham, that was circumcision, but for us, it's what? Holy baptism by which the Spirit broods over the waters in a new act of creation, making us clean hearts, uniting us to the mystical body of Christ, who died for the forgiveness of our sins and was raised for our justification, who alone can set our crooked hearts right and transform us into his perfect likeness. And secondly, like Abraham, it works by living in a way that is consistent with that sacrament. In baptism, we didn't just perform a magic spell that gave you a get-into-heaven-free card any more than Abraham's circumcision was a get-into-Canaan-free card. He still had to hoof it all the way there. Although Christ has accomplished everything for us once and for all, we as human beings come to experience and share in the fruits of his victory and his work here in real time as we strive to be faithful to the promises that we made in our baptismal covenant. As the promises to Abraham came with a call to walk before God and be righteous and to leave behind his father and his mother and cleave to the word of God, so we pledged to renounce our loyalties to God's rebellious enemies, the world leaving behind the world, the flesh, and the devil, our old way of life, and to cleave to Jesus Christ, to pledge our allegiance to him as Lord, as Master, and as Savior. And we promise to do that by persevering in the church's whole way of life, set out in the book of Acts, First of all, in the threefold rule of the prayers of the daily office, the breaking of the bread, that is the Eucharist, and the devotion to God through the teaching of the apostles, that is the scriptures. Secondly, to a life of continual repentance from our sin. Third, to a commending of the faith that is in us to others around us. Fourth, to persevering in works of 
mercy for Christ's sake, and fifth, to living as a peacemaker in the wider world. We promise to live this way not in order to earn God's favor or entry into eternal life as though we could ever earn those things, but rather as an expression of our faithfulness to God. And because this is how we actively participate in what Jesus Christ has done for us and is still doing in the world through his body, the church. And it is that participation in the works of Christ, in God's works, that gradually transforms us by grace to experience here in real time the forgiveness, the healing, and the justification that he came to win us, to set our crooked hearts truly right. So here in Lent, as we prepare for the Easter Vigil and the baptisms that will happen there and to renew our own baptismal vows. It would be a great practice to open up to page 305 of our Book of Common Prayer. If we have one at home, wonderful. If not, maybe we can snag one, uh, a picture of page 305 of the Book of Common Prayer before we leave here. It has those five promises that I just outlined and to carefully examine our lives in light of those promises that we made at our baptism. To ask ourselves, honestly, where is my way of life beginning to reflect that Abraham-like fidelity and the fruits of the Holy Spirit writing the law of God upon our hearts? Where is my way of life falling short of that? Where is the tempter misleading me by suggesting did God really say that you have to do that? And then, let us thank and praise God for his mercy and goodness towards us, that in his love for us, he's provided a way for us to renew that cleansing, justifying grace of our baptism through the earnest confession of our sins in his holy church or to its representative, a priest, to set us back on that right course so that ultimately we attain to our true heavenly homeland, that place that Abraham craved and longed to see, the Jerusalem above, set at Christ's right hand. Now let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all of us who have gone astray from thy ways and bring us again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of thy word, Jesus Christ, thy Son, who with thee and the Holy Spirit liveth and reigneth, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.